he he describes Japan as as a country that is excellent in producing students that are A minuses or B pluses, very high average. But if you happen to be an A plus or a C minus, you're out of the mainstream for better or for worse, and more often for worse. And you could imagine how that is and how it could be detrimental to having an innovative mindset because innovation can only flourish, right? If you can freely express yourself, it, it flourishes in freedom. And, and I believe that this is where American universities have no rival, this fostering of, of risk-taking and, and facing the fear of failure. Konnichiwa, minasan. Businesses Successful Japan no podcast e yokoso. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. This podcast is for individuals who want to develop and strengthen the communication skills and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation with Francis Pachenko, a native of the Philippines who migrated to Queens in New York City back in 2009. His work with the agency GMI Post has involved creating and publishing investment guides of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City and the Japan Times, which is Japan's oldest and largest English-language daily newspaper. His work under GMI Post allows him to travel the world, and so far, he has covered 23 geographies from South America to Central Asia, interviewing and gaining insights from different Japanese and non-Japanese business decision makers for the Japan Times. But before I share Francis's insights with you, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned just one useful phrase for complimenting someone in Japanese. Mega takai. Me. Ga. Ta. Me is the Japanese word for I, while takai is an adjective meaning tall, high, or often even expensive, depending on the context. Ga marks the preceding word as the subject of the sentence, so this phrase literally could mean roughly, the I is tall. In reality, however, the easiest English equivalent to keep in mind is, you have good taste. To learn more about how to use this phrase, be sure to listen to the beginning of the previous episode of the podcast with Cindy Bissick. In today's episode, I want to introduce a word that is central to the conversation. Monozukuri. Mo-no-zukuri. Monozukuri. If you look at the kanji this word is written with, you can grasp the meaning as thing-making. While not as widespread as the concept of kaizen, Monozukuri is another business term that is sometimes used to refer to manufacturing. But more than that, it also carries a strong connotation of pride in one's work and continual striving to produce a high-quality product. So in reality, monozukuri could also just as correctly be translated as craftsmanship, depending on the context. It's difficult to do justice to this word in translation, as it's inherently bound to Japanese culture, but hopefully the significance of the concept will become clearer in today's interview. So be sure to keep listening to learn more. Hi, Lydia. Thank you again. It's an honor to be on your podcast. I'm, I'm very humbled by it and honored. So thank you once again. So my name is Francis Pacheco, and I have been working with GMI Post since 2015. And GMI Post is a Hong Kong-based media partner of media organizations like the Japan Times. 
And I was born and raised in the Philippines. And I moved to Queens uh, in New York City uh, to complete my undergraduate studies in philosophy. And uh, at one point, I was actually studying for the Roman Catholic priesthood. Uh, but I realized eventually that the religious life was really not the path I was meant to take. And I was even told that I had been concerning myself too much with worldly matters. And so I guess I uh, took it as a sign that I should be working with a daily newspaper. So here I am. It sounds like it's a good fit if that was... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just keep you out of the priesthood. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your history with Japan more specifically? Right. So uh, the bulk of my work consists of my team and I. We, we normally stay in a country for three months at a time. And we explore the business ties that that country has with Japan. And our work is then published on the Japan Times. Uh, of course, it goes without saying that the additional fun of the work consists in interacting with the local culture and the people and really just getting to know the country on a, on a grassroots level. And for my work with GMI Post and with the Japan Times, um, I've been assigned to some regions like Japan, of course. I, I've lived and stayed there for quite some time. I've also been assigned to countries in South America where there are huge uh, Japanese populations like Peru, for example, and even countries where uh, the Japanese population is not really that big, uh, like Bolivia, Ecuador, and Uruguay. I've also been assigned to countries in Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and 32 out, and I've also been to about 32 out of the 48 contiguous states in the U.S. And specifically about Japan, I was given the privilege to visit 18 prefectures and, you know, walk around the factories and interact with, with Japanese uh, executives. And um, despite the fact that everything can be Googled nowadays, uh, we still see the importance of visiting the actual place, uh, really in order to get the entire picture and observe it in real, in real time. And I guess anyone familiar with, with Japanese management practice would call this uh, the Genchi Genbutsu, right? Or going to the real place. And that's, that's what we do. So then what is kind of the mission of the work that you're doing at your current position? Okay. So as we speak, uh, my team and I are preparing a, a report on taxes for the Japan Times. And actually, if it weren't for COVID, we would have been at the actual place in this case, Texas, but the pandemic situation in Asia is not yet at the level where we want it to be. And so we're conducting our work via Zoom. And this is actually my second time covering uh, the state of Texas. The first was back in 2018. And at the time we were writing about the recent uh, relocations of Japanese US headquarters, like Toyota and Kubota from California to, to Dallas. Um, but really on a more general level, our work consists of surveying and identifying key actors in the interaction uh, between specific U.S. states and Japan. And if you may ask, uh, you know, who, who would be these key actors, uh, for example? But we can divide really the, the stakeholders into two groups. So on the one hand, there are, of course, the Japanese companies that have set up shop in the U.S., and, and uh, my experience interacting with Japanese executives abroad, 
for example, in, in America, is that one of their priorities is to constantly communicate to the Japanese public about the success of, of their subsidiaries, as well as to show how they are committed to investing in their local communities. And so I did, I did a couple of uh, research and about 6,000, I guess a little bit more than 6,000 uh, Japanese companies operate in the U.S., and of that, about 250 Japanese companies have some presence in Texas. And quite a good number of them are in niche manufacturing. Now, on the other hand, you have the stateside folks. So these would be American companies uh, that are involved in the Japanese manufacturing supply chain in some way or form. And a, a point of pride in, in that relationship is uh, quite a number of them are minority run. So it's, it's, it's very progressive in that sense. You also have the various state level and county level economic development communities, of course, whose job is to attract Japanese corporate relocations from Japan or even from other states in the U.S. to their, to their own locality. And lastly, there's also stakeholders from the education sector, so mainly U.S. universities. And so aside from the usual undergraduate programs that normally exist between the two groups, a lot of Japanese companies have been collaborating with U.S. universities for their R&D and workforce needs. Those are the three, normally the three groups that, that we cover. So then can you dig in a little bit more on Japanese niche manufacturing specifically? Uh, sure thing. Um, but given the limitation of time, mm -hmm. um, just allow me to... Uh, simply paint the picture in uh, very broad strokes. Uh, but in a nutshell, uh, Japanese manufacturing or, or German or American niche manufacturing for that matter would be the production of components that eventually go into consumer products like phones or cars. Um, but oftentimes it's also the production of capital equipment that companies sell to very uh, select companies so one example of uh, Japanese niche manufacturing would be the production of machines that are needed to manufacture other types of machines. But a uniquely Japanese type of niche manufacturing could be encapsulated in the word monozukuri. And roughly translated in English, it would be craftsmanship or the art of making things. Um, so in this sense, the hallmark of Japanese niche manufacturing is that they move in very small markets, but these companies have an overwhelming share of the market space. Um, some companies have 50% of the market, uh, market share in the world, and 50 Japanese companies in this, in this uh, very niche areas even hold 100% market share across the world. So very, very impressive in that sense, but also these Japanese companies form a very tight-knit network of suppliers whose relationships go back for decades. And in, in the West, you know, the word monozukuri may not have the uh, cultural cachet, for example, that Kaizen has. Uh, everyone uh, knows Kaizen, uh, but nonetheless, uh, monozukuri is, is very important. And it's a philosophy that informs and influences the, the Japanese way of production. And like almost anything Japanese, it's a very old concept uh, and it even predates uh, Japan's rapid industrialization more than 100 years ago. 
And admittedly, uh, niche manufacturing, in the eyes of consumers at least, uh, you could say is unsexy, or, or maybe it lacks the oomph that Tesla, for example, or, or Apple's products would evoke. But in my Monazukuri tour of Japan, I succinctly remember a couple that really gave off that wow factor. So one company is called Nitoku, and the company is headquartered in Saitama, which is just north of Tokyo. And among its product line, uh, Nitoku manufactures tiny little um, springs or coils um, that eventually make their way into our phones. And when I asked the, the CEO, so really, well, what, what do these springs or coils do? And, and, and he said that they're the ones responsible for the vibration of the phone when the alarm clock goes off. And another company based in Yokohama, uh, this one is particularly memorable because upon arriving at their office, my team and I were served sushi and sashimi. And I thought, well, that's quite an extravagant show there of uh, omotenashi, or <laughs> you know, hospitality. Um, and only, only when we finished eating uh, the sashimi uh, did, did they say, you know, the, the salmon that you ate is three months old. And in fairness, the president also got a slice from the same fish. So um, I didn't, I didn't uh, quite worry there. Um, but this company in question, uh, it's called Technican. It's headed by Mr. Yoshio Yamada. And his company happens to manufacture machines that employ liquid freezing. And the long and short of it is the liquid freezing technology that they use, they preserve the cellular composition of the food so that once uh, the, the sashimi thaws, you get the same flavor and texture as on the first day it was first frozen. So those are just some of the examples of, of niche manufacturing that I really personally thought this is really impressive. For years, uh, you know, we have been reading news articles that talk about the decline of Japanese manufacturing, uh, especially in the face of South Korean or even now uh, mainland Chinese competition. And of course, these articles contain elements of truth, but it is because they often look at Japan's competitive edge from the point of view of consumer products, you know, like electronics or white goods like uh, dishwashers or TVs, right? But in this sense, you mean, I mean, sure, you have players like Samsung and LG that definitely have edged out Japan in this sense, especially in terms of marketing, um, and to a larger extent in the in the digital digital revolution. Uh, however, in in my in my uh, observation, uh, the Japanese have eventually learned how to pick their battles. And uh, I guess continuing this analogy, uh, Japan has switched the battlefield and brought the fight to the area of niche manufacturing, where they still have market share dominance. One example of, of this kind of movement uh, would be Hitachi. I mean, I remember the days when we used to have a uh, Hitachi AM FM radio back in the Philippines. And uh, you'd never find one of those nowadays in, in the stores, right? Uh, but Hitachi has shed off a lot of its consumer products, and they're now focusing on capital equipment like trains, turbines, heavy engineering and such. And that's one example of a Japanese company that has, I guess, readjusted its center of gravity in order to 
to adapt to a changing world. And one other thing to note about Japanese niche manufacturing is that, and, and manufacturing in general uh, in Japan, is they are they are extraordinarily resilient. And you know, you see this in in the Great East Japan earthquake back in 2011, where uh, the supply chains were up and running in, in a matter of weeks. So I think that this resilience doesn't just concern themselves with, with, with manufacturing per se, but, but the Japanese mindset about overcoming trials. And, and there's actually a very good book about that. Uh, the title of the book is Bending Adversity. And, and I, I encourage people to read it. The author is David Pilling. Thank you for that overview. It definitely sounds like we could spend the whole episode just talking about niche manufacturing specifically. Right. But <laughs> just in the interest of time, could you move to talk a little bit about what role American universities have been playing specifically when it comes to addressing the concerns and the pain points that Japanese manufacturing companies face in the States? So, you know, universities, I want to say the importance of U.S. universities as far as the Japanese companies are concerned uh, is not simply for creating a feeder for future employees, but um, I believe the U.S. universities can also be an area where younger Japanese could acquire that, that American value of not fearing to fail. Um, in one of my conversations with the CEO of a Texas-based medical device company, so this company works a lot with Japanese um, suppliers and customers, uh, he, describes the, he describes the Japanese as a society, well, if we are going to use the classroom analogy, right? He, he describes Japan as, as a country that is excellent in producing students that are A- minuses or B pluses very high average. But if you happen to be an A plus or a C minus, you're out of the mainstream for better or for worse. And more often for worse. And you could imagine how that is and how it could be detrimental to having an innovative mindset because innovation can only flourish, right? If you can freely express yourself, it it flourishes in freedom. And, And I believe that this is where American universities have no rival. This fostering of, of risk taking and and facing the fear of failure. And so in this sense, I believe American universities have to be more aggressive in their outreach to the Japanese universities and companies for that matter. And, and I think there's a lot of value that they can provide beyond just the student exchanges. So one concrete example would be that Japanese subsidiaries in the US themselves are involved in product R&D, you know, where they can contract universities for lab work, uh, QA testing, and they, they even provide internships for undergraduates. And uh, second is that uh, bridging two very different cultures is, is just as much as a strategic priority for a company as, as anything else. Um, because without a culture fit, it would be hard to implement things. And, and I think that, um, for example, business schools in the U.S. could be useful in such matters in, in bridging the culture culture gap between Japan and the U.S. And as a matter of fact, uh, the ASU's Thunderbird School of Management or Thunderbird School of Global Management has an extensive alumni network in Japan. 
and they're actively uh, globalizing Japanese companies from the inside out. So that's that's one example. And another another area in which Japanese manufacturing and I guess the Japanese economy as a whole um, is is having difficulty with is in digital transformation. So they call this DX for short. DX is also another point of collaboration between American universities and Japanese manufacturers. Um, Because as people know, innovation is a process. Sometimes it's messy, it's, it's born out of trial and error. And almost always, no one person can take the credit for, for the things that, that innovation uh, produces. However, once uh, the Japanese company or, or a manufacturer innovates something, uh, the next question there is how do you synthesize it? How do you market it? How do you commercialize it? And I think that this is an area where American ingenuity and, and American or the risk-taking part would complement well with the strengths of the Japanese. And especially that digital transformation as well is rapidly blurring the lines between strictly manufacturing and say the customer facing aspect of it, especially outside of Japan. And so I guess the next step here is that the universities as well can provide an outpost of innovation for Japanese companies in the US. It definitely exemplifies the cliche in Japan of the nail that sticks out gets hammered down, where you want to cultivate B pluses and A minuses, but if you try to force everybody to fit into that narrow range, you miss out on people who are inherently the innovators. It's usually the people who don't fit in so well who end up trying something fundamentally new and different. So. Yeah, not if you can't make space for that in your organization, let alone your culture, <laughs> that can right. make innovation particularly difficult. And um, th- th- that's a great point. And actually, Japanese have been innovators in the past. I mean, there have been, uh, Japan ha- has had two startup booms in the past, right? One during the Meiji era and one right after the Second World War. And the companies, you know, they're the Mitsubishis of the world right now, the Mitsuis, the, the Panasonics. They were founded by someone, and normally they were the innovators. And regarding manufacturing, yes, there, there is a virtue to this kind of uniformity and standardization. Uh, and that, that's one of the reasons why Toyota, for example, became a leader in manufacturing. However, now that, uh, as I mentioned, the lines between the, the physical thing and, and, and software, which is normally open source, this is, this is an area where, you know, I don't want to say rocking the boat <laughs> because that's not Japanese per se, uh, but, but this is an area where they really need to be comfortable. So could you share a little bit about some of the interplay between the idea of monozukuri, Japanese small and medium-sized enterprises, and then internationalization? Sure. So there was a point in the past uh, when Japanese manufacturing actually had a negative reputation due to their substandard quality. And it was a situation similar to how the West viewed uh, mainland Chinese electronic brands in the early 2000s, for example. 
Um, but eventually, though, uh, through the Jap- Japanese company's efforts at continuous improvement, the consumer world came to equate Japanese brands with quality. And actually, back in the 50s, it was an American uh, by the name of W. Edwards Deming who introduced to Japan this, this whole quality process. And at the time, uh, Mr. Deming was not popular in America. His, his, his thoughts were, were not really given consideration in the U.S. And only, when, only then when, when U.S. companies realized that they were being overtaken by, by the Toyotas of the world that they, that they start talking to Mr. Deming. But, but the Japanese uh, took his, his teachings to heart very quickly. And, and we, for example, we find an, uh, an ideal example of this manufacturing excellence, uh, for example, in, in the Sony Walkman back in the 90s, or the Laserdisc. Uh, I remember I was three years old when, when the Laserdisc was really in vogue. That shows my age, sorry. Um, but the exciting thing about Japan, despite their problems back home, is that these Japanese small and medium-sized uh, manufacturing companies uh, are basically venturing out from Japan and are starting to establish themselves in Southeast Asia um, and in the U.S. primarily. And a couple of trends are, are driving this venturing out, so to speak. So one would be Japan's flat, relatively flat economic growth for, for three decades now and its other um, sibling, if you may, uh, Japan's rapidly aging population. And so for a lot of these manufacturing companies, uh, they find themselves in a sink or swim situation where the only path forward is outwards. And uh, concretely speaking, these companies have traditionally considered the U.S. Uh, not just as a new market and, and as a manufacturing base for their, for their operations, but more and more they considered the U.S. really as an outpost of innovation where they can uh, ultimately bring back that technology home or equally important to, to inject fresh mindset into how, how they, they operate the company. So from what you've seen, it's very much a two-way street in terms of bringing what these unique Japanese companies have to offer to these new areas, but then also taking new ideas from those areas and bringing them back to Japan. That is correct, um, especially in... Uh, so, so, and I, I do want to, to compare and contrast how the Japanese uh, approached investment in the U.S. back in the 80s and how they approach uh, investment in the U.S. today. And just to provide a, a point of reference, one of the books about this topic, uh, if you, if you uh, recall Michael Crichton, the author of Jurassic Park, he wrote a novel back in the 90s called The Rising Sun which mirrored the prevailing belief at the time that Japan is overtaking uh, the U.S., not only economically, but in in all aspects. And the 80s were especially famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, for Japan's uh, purchases of U.S. assets like golf courses. You know, they they bought the Rockefeller Center, uh, not to mention other purchases of companies that really formed the backbone of American industry. And, and some, some would consider these vanity purchases because at the time, uh, they really didn't know the, the, the true value of these purchases. And, and it has been proven that a lot of these acquisitions 
really didn't undergo through the thorough due diligence, which the Japanese are known for. Um, but fast forward to today, I could describe a couple of exciting developments in, in this sense. First is that unlike in the 80s or 90s, when a recently acquired U.S. company would have a Japanese official and a local figurehead executive, uh, now these U.S. subsidiaries are run by local industry veterans. And they know a lot about the local market. They, they know more intimately about the culture, the customers. And Japanese companies now have this confidence in, in, in having the locals run their operations. And it also, it also demonstrates the independence and agility that U.S. subsidiaries enjoy. I mean, on this point, I should mention that it is remarkable given that Japanese companies, like big organizations elsewhere, are like ships that are very hard to steer and they are driven more by inertia than anything else. And so the U.S. subsidiaries of these Japanese companies are given more leeway uh, because they act as antennas of innovation. And, and headquarters in Japan expects that they can have access to technology in the U.S., the workforce, as well as that, that new mindset of approaching things. And second would be that these U.S. subsidiaries of Japanese companies take innovation very seriously. And even though the days of Japanese consumer hardware dominance is long gone, uh, the changing circumstances in the U.S. and throughout the world, you know, like the COVID pandemic, topics of climate change, sustainability, you know, these have given companies like Panasonic and NEC, the bigger companies, an opening to introduce their innovative products to the U.S. market. And I would be remiss if I shouldn't mention the, uh, the startup scene in the U.S., because American startups and the whole, the whole community, you know, is still one of the world's most complex ecosystem. And ideal partnerships exist for local startups looking for an exit, for example, and Japanese companies that want to acquire a technology. And recently, uh, as a matter of fact, 18 of, of Japan's largest companies have put up a fund an $18 billion fund that will target startups involved in digital transformation and the green economy. And they are targeting startups in the EU and in the US. And more importantly, I think more than just acquiring or having access to technology, I think the Japanese interest in foreign startups is also a quest to diversify their workforce and eventually to you know, welcome fresh takes or, or new ways of approaching things. And, and of course, anyone familiar with Japanese culture knows that Japan is a highly collective society, right? Harmony and not rocking the boat for various historical or, or, or cultural reasons is a virtue. And, and, and hopefully the American startup mentality, or at least its good aspects, can revitalize Japan in this sense. So I was a little bit curious about one thing that you said specifically about this move towards having locals run these subsidiary companies instead of bringing in somebody from Japan to do so. Just from what you've seen, is that primarily just due to the fact that Japanese talent is because of demographics becoming harder to come by in a sense? Or was that more of an intentional move that you've seen? I think it's a, it's a combination of both. One is that the Japanese are really more confident in in, in 
letting the locals run the place. And this isn't just in, in the US, but even in other subsidiaries in Europe and even in Southeast Asia. And also because the Japanese have realized their mistake back in the 80s when they would make these uh, mergers and acquisitions without really, without really giving it some hard thought. And so I think, I think the fact that, that locals are, are running the, these US subsidiaries is a testament to the Japanese confidence uh, that they have in, in their local workforce. So then are there any other things that Japanese companies have started to do differently with those subsidiary companies in recent years? So aside from looking at the U.S. as an outpost of innovation for these uh, U.S. subsidiaries, more and more they're also becoming involved in local economic development. And, and this is, you know, this, this has been true for Japanese manufacturing companies that have provided jobs to, to the local population. But they're also moving into research and development. They're now having tie-ups with, with local American companies that specialize in one thing and would integrate that technology into, their, into the products that the Japanese manufacture. But also, we shouldn't forget that the Japanese expansion in the United States still generally follows the uh, contour of the local business landscape. So, for example, if a Japanese you know, automotive supplier lands in the U.S., they most would probably land somewhere in the Midwest or in the southern United States because, you know, you already have Toyota there, Nissan and Honda. And if that Japanese company happens to be a hard computer hardware company or even software, Silicon Valley is still, is still the place to be. And, and uh, Japanese pharmaceuticals have been very active in the Boston and Cambridge area. But at present, California is still the leading uh, state for Japanese companies by several orders of magnitude. But other states are seeing some of the most uh, dynamic involvement. And for example, one of the reasons why Japanese companies have, have been moving into states like Texas is that these states have a, a lower tax regime and it ultimately lowers the cost of doing business for these Japanese subsidiaries. That brings up something else that I wanted to talk about, which is those trends in the U.S. specifically where American states are starting to kind of compete with each other more explicitly to try to attract businesses, either through those tax benefits or other sort of incentives <laughs> to get more jobs or more industry into their state. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what impact those trends have had on Japanese manufacturing? Right. So in the example of well, one, one company that, that moved its headquarters from, from California to Texas is Kubota. And in my conversation with the Kubota CEO, uh, Mr. Masato Yoshikawa, he said that the move to Texas was a response to Kubota's rapid growth in the U.S., and moving to Texas was a way for them to get closer to their customers because the bulk of whom are in the heartland because you know, they sell tractors. But, but aside from just simply selling and distributing goods, uh, one, other, one other example of how Japanese investment is helping uh, revitalize the U.S. Is in, is in the state of Colorado. So for instance, Panasonic, is developing America's first smart city, which is a strip of land near or beside Denver International Airport. And they're 
they, they see they see these states that are generally large and and and, and huge swaths of land with 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 a lot of empty space, uh, they see this as a testing ground for new technologies. And another example I see is in the state of Alabama, where Toyota and Mazda have built a new factory. And this is in the Huntsville metro area, north of the state. And what's interesting about this is the factory will not only generate jobs for the local people, but it will also bring in some 400 Japanese employees from Japan to Huntsville. So I think that's that will be quite a change of culture there for the Japanese. <laughs> um, but but flipping the, the narrative the other way, Japanese relocation trends are also influencing the local community. So for instance, before the move of Japanese regional headquarters like Toyota and Kubota in Dallas, there was no Mitsuo market or this Japanese mega mega grocery store. So Mitsuwa is, is just found in the East Coast or, or in California. Uh, and now they are, they're, they're in Dallas. So that's interesting. And also, I think one of the most, the most interesting things, and in my opinion at least, is that the U.S. may finally be having their own bullet train. And it will be, it will, this bullet train will connect Houston and Dallas. And, you know, I can only imagine how much that will connect, well, not only physically, but also the Japanese and the Americans. So I think that's very exciting. It does sound like a lot of exciting trends that are going on in kind of unexpected areas of the United States. Right. Like you said, we usually associate those things with California, for example. Right. So that move to kind of off the beaten path or unexpected areas of the United States, has that had any impact on the companies back in Japan? I think it will. I think that when a Japanese uh, big manufacturer like, like Mazda and Toyota established themselves in, in Alabama, other Japanese suppliers would follow. And this is very typical because the Japanese are very tight-knit and, and they do business by association. And so, for example, in, in the startup scene, you would use the word ecosystem to, de to, to describe an entire community of companies working together. In, in the manufacturing space, they would call it an automotive corridor, where a Japanese company would be in one end of the, of the interstate, and then that interstate would be lined up with numerous Japanese suppliers supplying that, that one company. And yes, this is, this is a trend that I'm seeing as well, that whenever there is a new Japanese manufacturer in a new state, their suppliers from Japan would begin to set up shop in that state as well. So it's a, it's a virtuous cycle of, of job creation and, and, and creating value. Have you noticed any other impacts that this move from the more traditional or at least the stereotypical areas in the United States to those more remote areas has had on the host culture, besides, of course, bringing in jobs, bringing in expats, and then even bringing in new grocery stores. <laughs> Have there been any other changes? Yes. So one of the one of the things I learned in, in my conversations with not only U.S. universities, but even U.S. colleges and vocational schools is that these Japanese companies approach them for internships. And in the U.S., there is this huge 
uh, I guess, focus on STEM courses, you know, science, tech, engineering, mathematics. And the fact that these Japanese companies are in engineering, are in manufacturing, uh, they have provided a lot, a lot of opportunities for high school kids to build their careers by interning or by apprenticing for these Japanese companies. So I think, I think the, the benefit here is, is not really just in the, in the, on a macro scale where it, you know, uh, it obviously brings a lot of jobs, but it also impacts the local communities in very real ways. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how that changes. I had a previous guest on the podcast who talked about, I don't know if she mentioned it during the interview, but she is involved in a Japanese language immersion program, which used to be common in the 80s and recently has kind of been overtaken by Mandarin immersion or Spanish immersion classes, none of which is wrong. It's just a big shift from kind of what we tended to see in the roaring 80s in Japan. So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that sort of trend comes back in these more rural parts of the United States. Right. And, and I really believe that they're missing out on a lot. Uh, students, if, if uh, they don't learn uh, Nihongo, <laughs> um, because and, and I know that, you know, workforce, the shortage of workforce has been an ongoing topic in the U.S. even before the pandemic. But the Japanese companies are, are in the same boat as with the other local companies, in that there really is a, a shortage of workforce. And so I think that this knowledge of Nihongo for, for students um, would be very helpful and, to be quite honest, lucrative if they, if they happen to work with a Japanese company in the U.S. Mm -hmm, definitely. Just moving on a little bit, you mentioned before that you've lived in Japan for a certain amount of time as well. So do you have any personal examples of a communication breakdown that you experienced due to differences in culture? Right. So this one, I specifically remember when, when I was still new in Japan, I was in, I was in a meeting with a, with a Japanese company that manufactures drilling machines. And even though I knew beforehand that they, they spoke and understood English, uh, and that I would be facing a panel of four or five other Japanese in one room, very typical of, of Japanese uh, meetings, right? Um, I really didn't understand at the time about the process and the unwritten rules of, of Japanese meetings. And so during the meeting, I tried to get everyone involved by asking each of them questions. And I noticed they were all looking at the CEO and they weren't sure what to say. So it was only after the meeting uh, that uh, my colleague, who is more senior than me, he, he told me that, you know, you only were supposed to talk to the head and the others were, were there just to simply provide notes or information to the CEO. So, yeah. <laughs> but they know that I'm a foreigner, so I think they gave me a pass on that. Right, but that's such an easy thing to overlook. Just these unknown unknowns <laughs> when it right. comes to culture can have a yeah. big impact. I, I, yeah, I was used to to a very collaborative environment, right? Where in the U.S., uh, you try to involve everyone in the room as much as possible. But in Japan, it's very different. Right. In the U.S., it would be offensive in a way to literally only be speaking to one person the whole time. Your approach definitely makes sense in a more <laughs> international outlook. Yeah. Yes. 
So then if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan for business specifically, and they really didn't know anything about Japan, but you only had time to really teach them one thing about the country ahead of time, what would you choose to tell them about? On a very practical level, I found out that the Japanese very highly appreciate if you compliment them on how it was easy to find their office or that the right to their office was a pleasant experience. I really don't know, but they highly appreciate this kind of like a small talk uh, before we get into business, you know, talking about, you know, how, how are things. And I found that instead of talking about the weather, talking about how easy it was to find their office was something that the Japanese really liked. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, and I guess on a, on a more serious level, right, I, I would advise that person to not really be caught up with the, with the stereotype of the Japanese, because after all, they're, they're humans, as we all are, and, and, and that the focus on business meetings should still be on the value that, that we provide. And of course, you know, the, the ceremonials and the protocols, all that could be learned on the plane. However, my advice would be to not be caught up with the stereotypes and still be yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that brings up a couple of important things. One, just the importance of small talk <laughs> in Japanese <laughs> business culture. But I hadn't heard about complimenting the area. That's something I'll definitely have to look into more. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything that we didn't get to really discuss today? I know that we covered a lot of ground. So is there anything that we missed that you would like to quickly say before we wrap things up for today? Well, I just want to thank you again for this uh, work that you're doing. Uh, I, I think that more people should uh, uh, be more aware of, of how Japan matters for the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially in recent years, it can be very easy to overlook how significant Japan still is just because you can look at issues or opportunities abroad and there are countries that get a lot more attention than others. And Japan is definitely one that's been slipping under the radar in recent years, to say the least. So I would definitely agree with that. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. And please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Francis Pacheco and learn more about GMI Post. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you are using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out my link to the new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com, all one word, all lowercase, if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do so in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!